All right. Good morning, familia. Can you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be reading from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 to 11. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 4 to 11. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we, Israelites, including myself and my father's, my father's family, we have committed against you. We have acted very weakly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today. By granting him favor in the presence of these men, I was a cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you speak to us today, that you allow me to communicate uh, the words that you have already given us in the scripture. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing to you. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we say, you may be seated. So today we are uh, starting a six-part series based on the book of Nehemiah, and we have called this series Restored. Now, the idea behind this uh, series is to invite the church to renew your commitment or to renew our commitment to Christ and to align ourselves to God and what God is doing. In other words, we are inviting the church to experience what some people have called an spiritual renewal. That's what we want the church to experience, an spiritual renewal. And the reason why we are looking into some sections of the book of Nehemiah is because, in our opinion, we believe that there's no better book in the Bible that talks about this topic, what a spiritual renewal is. Actually, the story of the book of Nehemiah, it's all about this amazing revival. We think that in this book we find six different ingredients or six different components that are necessary for anybody to experience a spiritual renewal, for anybody to experience some sort of revival. Today we're talking about the first of these uh, ingredients. Uh, today we're talking about prayer. Because as a church we believe that there is power in prayer. Now... Um, I find it super interesting that in this book, the first thing that you find in Nehemiah is this prayer. The reason why I'm saying that is because when you look at the history of the church, 
as a whole, you would notice that every revival in the history of the church starts the same way, with prayer. Every revival, spiritual renewal that the church has gone through, always starts with the same thing, with prayer. Actually, if you, if you study the revivals in the history of the church, you will see that all these revivals happen to different people from different backgrounds with, uh, in different seasons of life with different theological convictions that belong to different churches in different times, but they all had one thing in common, prayer. So there's a, a professor, he passed away already, his name is Richard Lovelace. Uh, he wrote a book called The Dynamics of a Spiritual Life. Uh, and it's a, a survey on the theology of revivals. And he says that if you were to ask anybody that have experienced a revival, they would always say the same thing. The most essential thing in any revival or spiritual renewal is always prayer. Always prayer. So I'm asking... Three questions the text today. I'm asking Nehemiah three questions today. Why pray, how to pray, and when to pray. Really simple. Why pray, how to pray, and when to pray. Let's go with the first one. One, uh, why pray. Um, let me start with a little bit of context, just in case there's anybody here that is not familiar with the book. But when the book of Nehemiah was written... Um, a group of Israelites are returning to Jerusalem after being in exile for about 100 years. Um, and this is actually the third group that is returning back to Jerusalem. And as they, re they are returning to the city, they, they notice that all the walls that protected the city were completely destroyed. And if there was no, no walls, there was no protection. And if there was no protection, then there was no freedom. And to a certain degree, if there was no walls, no protection, no freedom, then they would not be free to practice their spiritual beliefs. By this time, Nehemiah has heard this, and he's working for a Persian king. Now, it's interesting to know that Nehemiah here is, um, is living a very comfortable life at this time. He is a person of a respectable position. He has actually no reason why to do anything different because life is going good for him. But he hears what his people are going through. And he automatically recognizes that God is doing something. He automatically recognizes that the reason why people continue to come back to Jerusalem is because God was doing something. Because he remembers that God had promised that one day he was going to bring his people back to their homeland. So in Nehemiah's mind, God is fulfilling his promises. And that's why he reacts to this. What I find amazing about Nehemiah is that because he knows that God has a mission, all he wants to do is to join what the Lord was already doing. Actually, if you think about it, that's a good description of what it means to be a Christian in mission. If you think about it, we never do missions. Christians always join what the Lord is already doing. And if that's true, we are always in mission. All we have to do is pay attention to what the Lord is already doing and we jump into it. 
That's what Nehemiah saw here. Now, in order for Nehemiah to help these people, to help all these Israelites, he needs to go to the king and ask for permission to go help them. But before he does that, he starts with the most essential thing, prayer. Now, notice here in verse 4 how he starts. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept because of the condition of his people. And for some days, some people would say that it was probably 40 days, he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, the question that I'm asking Nehemiah is, why did you start with prayer? Why not just do something? Because that's what we would do. If there's a problem, we just do something. See, but Nehemiah knows that there's power in prayer. Because prayer does two things all the time. Prayer changes things and prayer changes you. Prayer always changes things, and prayer always changes us. See, Nehemiah knows that prayer always changes things. By the time Nehemiah is about to pray here, he's got a history in his mind. He already knows what the Lord has promised that he's going to do. He already has seen how the Lord has been working. He knows that God always changes things through prayer. We cannot divorce the book of Nehemiah from the rest of the Old Testament. So if you probably want to understand the book of Nehemiah, you start Nehemiah and you move backwards. And I'm sure that Nehemiah knows this. So for example, in Exodus chapter 32, remember this is the time when Moses goes up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's having a conversation with God. And as he's having a conversation with God in Mount Sinai, the people at the bottom, are this, they decided to create their own God. Remember that? And they're worshiping their own God. Now, as they, doing, as, as they are doing this, the Lord says that, and he wants to bring punishment upon them. And Moses stood between God and the Israelites and pleaded for God's mercy. And God relented what he was going to do and did not punish them the way he wanted to punish them at the beginning. Prayer changes things. Here's another example, Joshua chapter 10. The Israelites are about to go into war. Joshua prays and God stops the sun so they could win the war. Prayer changes things. Second Kings chapter 20. Here we have uh, uh, Hezekiah, which is about to die. He prays to God. God extends mercy and God gives him another 15 years of life. Prayer changes things. And that's, all, that's only the Old Testament. And that's just a few examples. But if you look into the New Testament, the New Testament invites us also to pray. James chapter, chapter 4 says that sometimes we don't get what we need because we don't ask. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, ask and I will give you what you need. Prayer changes things. Now, for some of us that are maybe a little bit more theological, we say, well, hold on a second. Isn't God sovereign? Yeah. God in his sovereignty, providentially, meaning that he works whatever he wants to do, he uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. There's no conflict. God is sovereign, and he works providentially through our prayers. Prayer changes things. 
Let me quote uh, Richard Lovelace here again. This is what he says. The prayer of faith is the instrument which releases the mighty acts of the recent Christ in history. Prayer is releasing the power of the resurrection of Jesus. So this week I was learning about this revival in South Korea. I don't know if you knew this, but in the early 1900s, um, there was less than 1% Christians in the, entire, in the entire South Korea. Less than 1%. And what happened at that time is that these pastors and Christians gathered together and they started to pray like if there's no tomorrow. Praying like if the world was going to end. January 1907. And one century later, there are more than 10 million followers of Jesus in that place. Actually, even today, this is super interesting because second to the United States, uh, South Korea is the place that sends more missionaries to the rest of the world. That's amazing. In less than a century. So I was hearing about this pastor, that, um, that professor that went to South Korea and he says that he got up at 4 o'clock in the morning because he's hearing this noise, crazy noise in that place. And he doesn't know what it is. So he goes, out, he goes to the street and he realizes that the, the, the noise was coming from a stadium close by. And he's wondering who's playing, what kind of sport are they playing at 4 o'clock in the morning? And it wasn't a sport. It was Christians praying together, which is a practice that they still have today. Do you know why? Because that country learned that prayer changes things. Of course, the condition is that we pray according to God's will. But if we believe in God's will, then we pray according to his will. Not only prayer changes things, but prayer changes us. I actually believe that the less we pray, the less we change. Do you know why? Because every time we pray, we're saying to God, I don't have control over this. You have control. I don't have the power. You have the power. I cannot trust my strength. I must trust you. I cannot rest in what I have. I must learn to rest you. The reason why we change when we pray is because we are exercising communion or fellowship with God. And we change by proximity to God. Every time we, we pray, God is using that to change us. Actually, every time we pray, especially when we pray for somebody else, we learn how to get out of ourselves. The more we pray to him about the things that he cares about, the more we understand him, the more we understand him, the more we change. We change every time we pray. We learn how to die to ourselves every time we pray. Have you ever had this uh, uh, situation with anybody that you, you're struggling with someone and you have some sort of relationship crisis and you're starting to feel something inside of you in which you're holding something against that person? Let's say that we're not going to call it hate, but it feels that way. Did you know that the only way your heart changes is when you start praying, you start blessing that person? It is almost impossible to hate anybody when you're blessing a person. Prayer changes you. 
Prayer changes everything. Prayer changes things, and prayer changes you. If that is true, and I believe it is, then a bad prayer is much better than no prayer. A really lame prayer is much better than no prayer at all. I actually think that this is the reason why the devil hates it when we pray. This is what these scholars said. It is sometimes forgotten that if, we, that if the devil tempts us to do evil, uh, let me see. It is sometimes forgotten that if the devil can, te can tempt us to do evil, he can also tempt us not to do good. He can glamorize sin, but we can also paint an, he can also paint an ugly picture in our minds of any work which is the will of God, including prayer. So I'm convinced of this, people. He doesn't mind how much we read the Bible and we come to church. As long as we don't pray, he's okay. But that's not what God has called us to do or to be. Because prayer changes things and prayer changes us. That's why we pray. That's why Nehemiah prayed. Second question, how to pray? Well, if we go back to the text, you see that this is almost like a blueprint on how a person that is seeking a spiritual renewal prays. And he's going to show you that there's four different kinds of prayer. Super interesting. In one prayer, you'll find all four. You will learn uh, we, to pray looking upward. We learn to pray looking inward. We learn to pray looking backward. And we learn to pray looking forward. Look at here the first one, looking upward. Whenever we start looking upward, we are declaring and confessing full dependence in God. So look at how he starts in verse 5. He starts with the word Lord. Which is an interesting word because it's a covenant name of God. Meaning that once God makes a commitment to, to people, he never walks away. And that God fulfills all of, your pro all of his promises. Then he calls God the God of heaven. And here Nehemiah is acknowledging that God is sovereign. That God is in control and that everything goes according to his plan. And then he calls God great. Which means a God of power, all-powerful, omnipotent God. And then he calls God an awesome God, which is another name to say that God is holy. Meaning that everything God does and everything God allows is always in his holiness. He never, he never, he never does anything wrong. There's no wrong motives. There are no mistakes because he is holy. And lastly, he calls God there in verse 5, a covenant uh, God of love. Which in the original could be translated as the word faithful. Nehemiah knows that regardless of what goes through, regardless of what his people have gone through, regardless of what he goes through, God is always faithful. Whether you see it or not. Now when he jumps to verse 6, he continues, he continues this looking upward dependence prayer. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. And with that one, he's acknowledging, acknowledging that even though God is Lord and God of heaven and great, awesome, and covenant God, is a God that is always present, always aware, never distant. And then he calls it themselves, himself and themselves servants. 
And I believe that Nehemiah is recognizing here that God is a God of mercy. That the only reason why anybody should call themselves servants of God is because God is a merciful God. Notice here that this is worshiping God. Verses 4 and 5, uh, are all, it's all about worshiping God, recognizing the glory of God. That's the reason why as a church, for example, we start our services with worship. And I think that there's a biblical and historical reason why is it that the church has always done it that way. Listen up. The bigger the glory of God looks, the more you learn to put everything else in perspective. The bigger God looks, the more you learn to put everything in perspective. The bigger God looks, the smaller my problems look. The more beautiful God looks, the quicker I learn to rest in him. The more powerful God looks, the more I learn to trust him. The more I remember who he is, the more I learn to rest in him. That's why we worship. That's why we recognize the glory of God, the weight of God, the power of God, the person of God. That's why worship is so important. Because it gives us a perspective of who he is and who we are. What I find interesting about this prayer is that he starts with worshiping, right? And he recognizes who God is. And as you see this all throughout the Bible. Whenever people recognize who God is, they automatically start looking into their hearts as well. And the more they realize how holy God is, the more sinful you realize you are. And now we move to looking inward for confession. Look at verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Notice here that he's confessing personal sins, family sins, and nation's sins. That's the reason why in verse 7 he's intentional about using the word we. We acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands. You know that in our society, that doesn't make any sense. For modern individualistic society, that doesn't make any sense. Because we understand the concept of confessing our own personal sins. But modern society don't understand what it means to confess the sins of our ancestors. I actually think that the church needs to learn how to do this more because we are part of history. We confess our sins, the sins of our family... And we confess the sins of our people. None of us get to say, well, I didn't do it. No, we confess. I believe that without confession, there is no transformation. I think that the Bible makes it clear. I think that the Bible makes it clear that without confession, there is no healing, there is no peace, there is no rest. I believe that without confession, there is no Christianity. Repent. That's how Jesus started. We must confess. And we must confess because we, that's the way we fight against our own sinful nature. I don't know if you ever thought of that, but confession is one of the ways in which your fight 
the sin within you. So I was reading this week, Paul Tripp, um, New Mercies Every Morning. That's a great devotional book. This is what he says. Confession is not natural for us. I, I think that is true. Uh, look at what he says. It's natural for us to think of ourselves as more righteous than what we are. That's natural. It's natural to blame others, to blame our wrongs and others. It's natural to say our behavior was caused by some difficult circumstance we are in. It's natural to exercise our inner lawyers and defend ourselves when we are confronted with a sin, weakness, or failure. It's natural to see uh, others, uh, the sins of others as bigger than ours. It is natural to see ourselves as more lawkeepers. It's natural to see ourselves more as lawkeepers than as lawbreakers. It's natural to point to our biblical literacy and theological knowledge as proofs of our spiritual maturity. It's natural to be more concerned about the sins of others than our own. It's natural to be more critical of the attitudes and behavior of others than our own. It is natural for you and me to be blind to the depth of our spiritual need. You know what I learned in my own personal walk with the Lord? When I start confessing the Lord with his good and painfully good, he shows me more reasons that I should confess. More, more things that I should confess first about. That's how you fight your own sinful nature. See, a spiritual renewal, revival happens only when we look upward and we worship and we confess our dependence. Spiritual renewal only happens when you learn how to look inward and confess your sins. And now Nehemiah says that we also got to learn how to look backward in gratitude and thanksgiving. Here in verse 8, uh, Nehemiah is quoting sections of the book of Deuteronomy. And he's remembering something that God said. And he's remembering how God was faithful. And this is what he says. This is quoting. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. He's remembering what God said. But if you return to me and obey my commands, I will gather you. And now Nehemiah is seeing how God fulfilled his promises. And he's thankful that God fulfilled his promises. And he's thankful that God does what he said he was going to do. And he's thankful that God is always reliable. Gratitude. Part of our prayer is gratitude. There's a Christian counselor called Julie Lowe. She says that gratitude is so important. Cultivating gratitude is so important because that is the only way we fight discontentment and we fight entitlement. You see that ungrateful people, Hannibal included, complain with God and to God when I feel that he is not giving me what I needed. Or that he did not give me enough of what I needed. Or that he did, does not give me what I deserve. But when you are full of gratitude, you know that everything you are and everything you have is not because you deserve it, but it's purely because of the grace of God. The more we are thankful for the things we have because everything is by grace the more contentment we find 
the more we know that we don't deserve anything. It's all grace. Now, I want you to see the natural flow here of this prayer. Because it starts with worship, and then confession, and then thanksgiving. But listen up. If you know who God is, if you know the reality of your sins, and if you know that regardless of that, God has been faithful in thanksgiving, that leads you to pray for other things in full confidence. And this is verse 10, looking forward in confidence. Now let me give you a little bit of context here because he's uh, Nehemiah quoting again uh, sections of Deuteronomy. And he's remembering something that God did for his people already. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your greatest strength and your mighty hand. I think that Nehemiah is doing, is doing this is the reasoning he's going through. If God was faithful then, if God redeemed his people then, do I have any reason to doubt that he's going to fa be faithful today and tomorrow? The faithfulness of God in the past is the guarantee that God will be faithful today and that he will be faithful tomorrow. One of my favorite uh, psalms in the Bible, without exaggeration, is Psalm 136. And it's a psalm that has 26 verses. And in 26 verses, the Lord repeats the same thing 16 times. In the ESV, which is the version I read, it says, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it's kind of a summary of the history of, you could say, Old Testament almost. So the first chapters talk about how God created everything. And then the second part of the chapter talks about how God redeemed, protected his people forever. But after every single one of those events, it says the same thing. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures forever. For his steadfast love endures. I'm going to do that 16 times. For his steadfast love endures forever. And this is the idea. He's saying everything that the Lord does, everything that the Lord has been doing, everything that the Lord did is because his steadfast love endures forever. Now, every time I struggle with something, I have to go back to that psalm. Because he tells me that if God was faithful there and there and there and there and there, I have no reason why to doubt that he's always going to be faithful. Because his steadfast love endures forever. We have so many reasons to be thankful for. We get to be thankful for who we are today. We get to be thankful because we're here. We get to be thankful because we get to hear the word of God. We get to be thankful because we get to blink. We get to be thankful because everything we are and everything we have is because of the grace of God. If that is true, I can rest 100% in what I go through right now. In God, in what I go through right now. And I can rest in him in whatever comes. Because his steadfast love endures forever. See, when we pray, we look upward, upward in worship and dependence. We look inward in confession. We look backward in thanksgiving. And we look forward in confidence. Some people use the acronym ACTS. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. 
So because we want the church to experience some sort of a spiritual renewal, some sort of revival, spiritual revival, we, we want to invite you to take some sort of action steps here. So here, we're going to put the first, uh, the first slide here. If you never pray before, let's say that you're starting to walk in your relationship with God, even if you haven't, just do it. Start praying today. I think that a great way, a great place for you to start praying is Matthew chapter 6. Because this is where the Lord is praying. He's teaching us to pray. Now, let's say that you're an, an occasional prayer. That means that you pray when you're in need or when you remember or when things go wrong. Well, from occasional prayer, we want you to move into being an intentional prayer. Make it a discipline. Don't just pray for your personal needs and when you struggle, continue to do that. But pray for other things. Pray for the needs of others. Pray for your community. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your friends. Pray for the nation. Pray for other nations. And let's say that you're already a consistent prayer. We want you to grow radically. Meaning that one of the ways you do that is when you learn to pray what the Bible says you ought to pray with the words the Bible gives you to pray. For some reason, my best prayers, whatever that means, is always when I'm praying what God already told me to pray. I use his words to him. I quote him what he already told me. Something tells me that if he puts the word, his words in this amazing book, there's power in those words. So one of my spiritual disciplines is to pray the Psalms every day. Not every single 150 Psalms, just one Psalm a day. I read it and I pray it to God. Amen? All right, so we answered the question why we pray. I kind of show you from Nehemiah how to pray. And then the last question is when should we pray? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says that we pray without ceasing. You know what that means? That we pray at all times, wherever you are, however you feel. You pray if you feel like it and you pray if you don't feel like it. Actually, my saying is this. If you don't feel like praying, pray until you start feeling it. But how do we know? How do we know that God listens to our prayers? How do we know that God is going to use our prayers to change things? How do we know that God is going to use those prayers to change us? How do we know? Well, look at the screen of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. It says, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In one verse, you get the entire theology and why we pray. Gives you three reasons in one verse. Number one, the reason why we pray is because we have access to the Father. Means that we have permission to come to God the Father whenever we want, however we want, without permission, without an appointment, without anything. Because he's our Father. My daughters don't need permission to come to me. My daughters could come to me early in the morning, in the evening. They could come to me at 3 o'clock in the morning. Interesting because sometimes my wife wakes me up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I feel that she needs permission. <laughs> but now my daughters, which is so sinful on my part. My daughters could come to me because they know they have access to me all the time. 
Actually, that would be a radical difference between Christianity and the Muslim world. Did you know that Muslims have 99 names for God? 99 names for God. And yet not one of them is Father. But we do. God, our Lord, the God of covenants, our God of heaven, God powerful, the great God, the awesome God, the covenant love God is my father. That puts everything into perspective. Reason number two. The reason why we know that God is going to listen to our prayers and answer our prayer is because when we pray, we do it in the spirit or by the spirit. You know what that means? That the spirit helps you pray. That the spirit gives you the words to pray, the thoughts to pray. He moves you to pray and he prays for you even when you're not praying. The reason why we know that God listens to our prayers and changes our prayers and uses our prayers to change is because we have the Father, we have access to the Father, and the Spirit is working as well. And the third reason, the reason why we should always pray, is because the only reason why we have the Father, access to the Father, and we have this Holy Spirit to help us pray, is because we have Jesus. It is through Jesus. The only reason why we have a father is because for a fragment of time he lost his father at the cross. The only reason why we know that he listens is because he did not listen to Jesus at the cross. The only reason why we know that we always accept it and welcome is because Jesus took our spot on the cross. You know what I find amazing about the prayer life of Jesus? Is that every single prayer Jesus made, he always said the same thing. My father, my father, my father, my father, except in one location, the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't get an answer. Do you know why? So we know that we would always get an answer. The reason why we pray is because we have access to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Prayer changes everything. Prayer changes things and it changes you. Prayer gives you a heart of worship. Prayer helps you how to confess. Prayer teaches you how to be thankful. And prayer gives you rest and confidence in who God is and what he's going to do. Amen? All right, let's pray. Can you please stand? Lord, we want to confess, along with Nehemiah, that you are awesome. That you are our God of heaven, that you are great, that you are perfect, that you are God of covenants. Also with Nehemiah, we want to confess our sins. And we ask uh, for your forgiveness in everything that we have done wrong. 
in everything that we are doing wrong. And we even ask him for the things that we will do wrong. We ask for forgiveness for our personal sins and the sins of our people. We thank you, Lord, because you are a good, faithful, powerful God that he always does things for us, for his people. We thank you, Lord, because everything we are and everything we have is an evidence of your grace. And now, Lord, we confess that we can trust you, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are always doing something and would always do something. We pray to you in full confidence, knowing, Lord, that there's nothing that can separate us from you in Jesus Christ. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...